We've been studying through the latter half of the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, if I could say it this way, the storyline since chapter 18 has been, there's been a battle at the throne. There's been a battle at the throne. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22, and uh, we're going to work our way through the rest of this chapter. Chapter 21, most of the ink on the page was oriented towards Saul, or I'm sorry, towards David and what was going on with David uh, here in chapter 22. Uh, most of the ink is uh, oriented towards Saul and uh, what's happening. We're going to see his life. And if I could say it this way, all the pages of the ink has been written upon uh, our God and he holds it all together and moves it all together. And we're going to see that going on today. So we're just going to get right after it, 1 Samuel 22. I'm going to begin by setting the context. We covered verses 1 through 5, but I'm just going to start there, read them. You join me in your copy of God's Word, and we'll work our way. Verse 1, chapter 22, David departed from there. Last Sunday, David is in five cities, uh, kind of three territories or countries almost. He is on the move, and David departed from there, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Uh, living in a cave is not the description of a uh, prosperous life, uh, but that's the status of what's going on for him right now. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, uh, they went down there to him and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt, uh, those in this area, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Now that sounds like a fun group of people to hang around right there, right? This is like the misfit island uh, all gathering together. And he became commander over them. And there were with him some 400 men. Verse 3, and David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And then the prophet of Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. And so David departed and went into the forest of Herath. So a cave to a kind of Gentile territory if you willish, and then over uh, to a forest. David is on the run. We'll pick up verse six where we're at today. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. So Saul learns where this uh, uh, band of guys are, David is now, and Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree uh, on the height uh, with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. You gotta have the picture here. It's like this little knob, this, this little hill that's there and there's a tamarisk tree. Remember, it's in the Middle East. If you're gonna be outside, be under a tree. And so uh, under the tamarisk tree, he's there, he, he's king, he's got a spear in hand, it's symbolizing his role, his position, his mighty warriorship of how awesome he is in all of this. And, and then he's got his servants gathered around him. You, you got to have this picture in mind, verse 7, and then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, hear now, people of Benjamin, by the way, that's important here in just a second. People of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give everyone... Hold on a second. Uh, notice here. If you've been with us and going through the test, Saul has gotten to the place where he can't even say the word David. He can't even refer to that anymore. So maybe I would read it like this. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the one of whom we do not speak of... Uh, 
Will, will he uh, give every one of you fields and vineyards, i.e. like I have? Uh, will the one of which we do not speak of, will he make you all commanders and thousands of, uh, commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? Now he's turning it personal. Uh, no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, the uh, one of whom we do not speak of. None of you is sorry for me <laughs> or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait at this day. Title of this section, a royal pity party. We are in a royal pity party. I've had some royal pity parties in my life and even some recently. How about you? Yeah, we, we know, we, we're pretty good at pity parties. Um, with all of it. You know what it is. It's woe is me. It's, it's why is this happened? Why is that happened? Why does it always happen to me? Why does it always happen to us? Why is it that way? Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I guess I'll just eat worms. You know, that whole gig of things. That's a pretty ugly sight. I went online to find some truth statements. <laughs> joking on that. But there were some pretty funny things about comments uh, to uh, when you have your pity party, just to bring some humor into the, uh, the really sad reality of what's going on here. Here's a couple responses to us in our pity parties. Here's one. I'm taking down the decorations from your pity party that no one came to. Ouch. Ow. Here's another one. Your pity party on Facebook should have been created under events, so we could have chosen whether to attend or not. <laughs> I love that one. And here's one. The pity party train has just derailed at the corner of get up and move on, and crashed into we all have problems before coming to a stop at get over it. You know, it's funny to, to think about saying it, but when you're in it, ouch. And so uh, I'm a visual guy, so let, let's even bring a picture here because I don't know if you saw Americans uh, Got Talent and, and they had uh, Puddles the Clown. And so here, here's Puddle in his pity party. I mean, that so sums up King Saul. I mean, he's got his crown and, he's, and he's, he may not be sitting on a bus, but he's all alone on the bus, at least in his head. And in all that, he's just making reference to, well, will, uh, will the one of whom we do not speak of, will he give you fields? I do. Will he make you commanders? And by the way, no one tells me anything. <laughs> Straight up word. Hey, Saul. Hey, Saul. You have took your ground against the Lord God. You have took your ground against the Lord's anointed one. And you have gone to war. And you have become proud. And you have become arrogant. And you have become self-centered. And you have become self-empowered. And you have become self-righteous. And you have become self-glorifying. And here you are now sitting under a tamarisk tree. King, spear in hand, all your guys around, and yet the fact is you are isolated and you have withdrawn yourself and you are all alone in your head. And you have now even pulled together these conspiracy theory 
of what's going on. And you will wield war against anyone that crosses you or threatens you. And you've insulated the one of which we do not speak of. You've insulated yourself from the very one who frankly could be of great and continued help to you. Everything in this scene depicts a very messed up, sad Saul. And it's going to get worse. I'm going to make note of a resource. There's a short book, Gene Edwards, A Tale of Three Kings, A Study in Brokenness. A Tale of Three Kings. If you're a leader, it's a read. It's about comparing and, and talking about Saul and David and Absalom. If you're not a leader, if, if you've maybe even been heard in church or by leaders, I'm telling you, it's a read. Um, as it talks about, I'll, I'll just leave it there. And there's more on Saul as we see his life. This is such a sad picture here. It's a very sad moment in what's going on. And, and let me reflect back a little bit. As a church in 2018, we went through the first half of 1 Samuel. And it was in chapter 10 that God had reprimanded his people for rejecting his kingship, his desire to be king over his people. And as God sometimes does, God gives us what we think we need. God allows us to have what we want. And God allowed them to have a king that was like the other kings of the nations. And so what happened was, is God told Samuel to come and, and cast lots, and the lot fell on the tribe of Benjamin. And then it keeps rolling, and it narrows down, and it narrows down, and then it comes down to this country boy of great stature and good looks. The guy you would think would be the one you would want presenting as king. And the dice rolls for Saul. In chapter 10, verse 23, if you remember, where do we find Saul? We find that Saul in that moment hiding in the baggage, the text tells us. When we were covering through that, I'll just say there was something very sweet in all of that for me. I mean, he's not out there like, woo, I won, I won the lottery, I'm king, now all bow to me. Uh, there is actually this thing, he is, I think, maybe in a healthy humility, in a healthy fear of this country boy now being had the dice rolled, and now he's going to become king of a nation. It reminded me of Exodus 3 and 4 when God in the burning bush tells Moses, hey, I want you, and Moses is kind of like, but not me, oh, please not me. Man, this is so not in my planner. This is like, I can't speak, I, I, I can't God, I can't, I can't, I can't. And Saul here was at that time in it, and it all held so much promise, but wow, it has gone upside down. Decades later now, we find Saul under the tamarisk tree, and he's got issues. And by the way, if I might just say to those of us with gray hairs, be careful. Life has a way over time 
of instilling bitterness. Be careful. Be careful. So we have a royal pity party and that leads to a royal indictment. Let's continue reading verse nine. Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Doeg, he was in chapter 21 last Sunday. He's an Edomite. Let me make a couple comments on that. Edom, it's the south of uh, the Dead Sea. It's kind of south and east. It's under Moab. David was beginning of the chapter, uh, spent some time in Moab. It's uh, in this territory, Edom is, to where uh, they have a history of contention with Israel. Uh, We're told in Numbers 20 that as the Hebrews are coming out of Egypt, uh, they're coming out and, and then they want to actually, Moses asked the king of Edom to pass through. May we pass through? We're not wanting to go to war. We're not wanting to fight. We just want to pass through. Is that okay? And the king of Edom said, no, no way. And in fact, if you do, I'm going to go to war with you. And so Moses said, whoa, 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 whoa. I think that's the way he said it in Hebrew. And, uh, and in that, and so they end up going around. Uh, I just tell you, uh, what, out of all of that built this contention and had been building over the years. And so Edomites did not have the basis of viewpoint, the understanding. They didn't hold to the priestly uh, uh, respect and lineage reality of things. That didn't matter to them. Hold that thought. And Doeg is an Edomite. And it is interesting here, we're going to find out in just a second, Doeg is amongst Saul close dudes. I'm just asking the question, why is that the case? Why is that the case? Why does he have that there? Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who, who stood by the servants of Saul, saying, I, I saw the son of Jesse, the one of whom we do not speak of, uh, coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahituv. By the way, uh, B in Hebrew is V, and if you say Ahitub, it sounds like the Teletub, so... I'm kind of staying away from that. Ahituv in verse 10, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So here's what's going on. <laughs> pity party, pity party, pity party. And then dogs over here. My opportunity. Opportunity. I have a chance here. Hey, king, I know something. Chapter 21, that's why he was included in there. I I was there and I saw David came to Ahimelech the priest to inquire of the Lord. And by the way, I saw Ahimelech give the bread of the presence to his men. You don't do that. Oh, and by the way, in that, uh, he walked out with Goliath's sword. Now, what's the image you're getting here? You see, Saul in his head is at war with David. Know this, David is not at war with Saul. And so often what ends up happening is we, we have a tendency to think that others think exactly like we do, and particularly when we are in a bad place. Well, if they say that, they've got to be like after it. It's like, stop it. Just stop it. That's not always the case. Sometimes people are just talking. And David here was seeking unto the Lord for what, what the Lord would have him do. And he does have the bread, and he does walk out with Goliath's sword, but Saul here is, and Doeg is presenting it such that you can understand why Saul would have this idea, and he's coming after you. 
Keep reading, verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahituv, and all his father's house, and the priests who were in Nob. Okay, so all the priests from Nob, including Ahimelech from chapter 21, are now all gonna come to meet with Saul. And all of them came to the king, verse 12. And Saul said, hear now, son of Ahituv. And he answered, here I am, Lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? me, you and the son of Jesse, the one of whom we do not speak of, in that you have given him bread and a sword and an inquired of God, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait at this day. I want to pause there. I love the fact that Saul starts with a question. Questions are tremendous tools. Questions are there to gather information. Saul's heard about from what Doeg has said, and, and now they've all come, and, and Saul's like, I, I want to inquire of, of this situation here. Questions gather information, and questions draw at the heart. Problem here is Saul's question was about neither of those. Saul's question was actually about setting Ahimelech up to take him down. There was no question. It was a guise of a question. And the royal pity party leads to an indictment. So Ahimelech responds, verse 14, then Ahimelech answered the king. This is a bold answer. Ahimelech said, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? <laughs> With Saul's thinking, that had to rub him wrong. Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for David? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die. Like, really? There was no intent to hear. There was no intent to learn. And you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you, oh, and all your father's house. And so this royal pity party leads to this royal indictment. By the way, anger does that. Saul did not ask this question to better understand or to draw out the heart. Saul asked this to set up to attack and punish. Some passages, Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right. Might that be Doeg? which by the way, I would understand why Saul might even think what he had perception out of. But then uh, verse 17 of Proverbs 18 goes on to say, until the other comes along and examines him. Saul, you need to listen to Ahimelech here. Proverbs 29 talks about responses like this. Verse one, it says, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Verse 8, chapter 29, scoffers set a city aflame. By the way, Saul is essentially going to do that here in just a minute. But the wise turn away wrath. 
Verse 9 of Proverbs 29, if a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. Then verse 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Then verse 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who's lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And in all this, I cannot help but think, as a church family here just this fall, we studied through the book of James and James chapter 4. Why are there fights and quarrels among you? Is it not because of the war within your soul? It's because I desire and I demand and then I judge and I punish. And Saul has gone through all of that. I desire, I now demand, I now make a judgment and I will punish you, Ahimelech, with death. And friends, I'll tell you, if there's one thing that this teaches us, it teaches us about us, we live in a broken world. And Saul, the country boy of good stature and good looks, once hiding in the baggage, get this, is now declaring death on God's priests. Oh my. Oh my. Saul. Really? Let's keep reading because this turns into a royal mass murder. Verse 17. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. Now he says it. That they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. Look at this. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. They even knew, this is off, dude. Dude, this is so off. You have so lost control of what's going on. Here you are, make a declaration of death to God's priests, and uh, no, I can't do that. All of them would have known at that moment the possibility of what might have come out of it from a hothead like Saul. And if they're like, can't do that, can't do that. Well, Saul can, so what does Saul do? Then the king said to Doeg, the Edomite, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, which, parentheses, doesn't have a a respect or an understanding or a care for the Jewish priestly lineage that had been set up by God at the time. Look at what happens. And Dog the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. Can you imagine? I'm trying to be careful here. Can you imagine what he must have looked like after slaughtering 85 priests? This is so brutal. So over the top. Verse 19, it didn't end there. And Nob, the city of the priests, he had, the, he had it put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. 
he put to the sword. Wow. That's where anger goes. Thomas and Greer comment on this. They say the narrative reminds us that the scriptures don't present the best world or the ideal world, but rather the scriptures reveal the real world. Saul pushed away his own son, exterminated Yahweh's priests, and repulsed his closest servants. Now he can only say, Doeg is for me. And they go on to say, when Doeg is for me, I am in trouble. (laughs) When a Doeg is for you, (laughs) you're in trouble. There's a whole sermon contained within what's going on here. And I know you're just like, no, bring it, dog, just bring it. But we don't have the time. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna have someone else say it who could just say it better than I can and more concisely. One of my favorite Old Testament commentators is Dale Ralph Davis. So I'm going to just read, and we'll have the on the screen is quotes here. There's gonna be six slides, just so you know. Read along, he's gonna bring this in here and talk to us because friends, there's more in this than we even see on the top surface. Listen, Davis says this. Force yourself to look at the scene. Terror and bloodbath at Gibeah. Butchery and annihilation in Priestville, which is Nob. And the witness of the text is that you have both need for realism and reason for confidence as you face the work of antichrists. In the history, in the course of history, there are antichrist figures who prefigure the full embodiment of the evil to come. A premier characteristic of the antichrist figure is that he opposes, enters into conflict with, and seeks to crush God's people. That is where King Saul comes in. In 1 Samuel 22, the veil slips away and Saul is seen for the Antichrist figure. He really is as he has Yahweh's priests summarily butchered. And yet, Doeg's butchery fulfills the word of God against Eli's house. Ghastly, brutal, and unjust Yet one cannot read Doeg's slaughter without recalling the prophecy of 1 Samuel 2, verses 30 to 36. Doeg's butchery fulfills the word of God against the house of Eli. That word had been spoken perhaps 40, maybe 50 years before. Now in the carnage of Gibeah, and Nob, sorry, it had come to pass. Don't berate the word of God, Davis says. God is not the author of evil. Place the blame where the blame belongs on the renegade. On this renegade Edomite and the Antichrist who commands him, Saul, They dared destroy the priests of Yahweh. It is a horrid wickedness for which Saul and Doeg are fully responsible. It is a clear fulfillment 
the word of Yahweh had spoken. Put together, and one truth becomes clear. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. Hold on to that one. Even in their wicked slaughter of Yahweh's priests, they nevertheless fulfilled his word. God's enemies proved the truthfulness of his word. In their hostility against him, they carry out his will. There is never a moment where God just steps back and lets it go. But I could say this, as I understand scripture, one day there will be a time. And yet even in this, in small groups who are doing sermon-based, even in this, you can talk more about this. Man, this is deep stuff, and this is even hard to wrestle through and put together. And frankly, some of it, at times, I can't put it together, but I know who can. And I rested there. So I move on. A royal pity party turned into a royal indictment that turned into a royal mass murder. But yet in all of the tragedy, you have to note this, there is a royal remnant that remains. A royal peacely, a priestly remnant. Look at verses 20 to 23. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, how many sons? One. Just one. But... But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahituv, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. That's interesting. Of all the places on the planet that that dude could have run to, he flees to David. Might I say, David is... is, 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 is is acting here as the small M Messiah. And he flees after David. Oh, I just, I'm sorry, I, I just, I'm so wound up in the, the redemptive plan of God and all this stuff. Verse 21. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Now, look at the contrast in David's talk versus Saul. You can't miss the contrast. And David said to Abiathar, I, I, I knew on that day, when Doag the Edomite was there, back in chapter 21, right over there on the other page, verse 7, that he would surely tell Saul, I knew that was going to happen. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David... You didn't cause that. But David's the kind of guy who's not going to shove the weight of it all off on someone else. David is understanding, man, 
just even in God's sovereignty and all how all this is playing out over this last decade of running from this dude, David had all the reasons to have a pity party right there. And yet instead of having the pity party about himself and sit there, he is acknowledging it, man, this wouldn't happen except for what, if I could say this, except for what God's doing in my life. And he feels the weight. He's not blaming God. He's not blaming anyone else. But he is certainly feeling the weight of the reality of being in the position that God has put him in. And way to go, dude. I can respect that. I can totally respect that. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Man, who doesn't want to follow a guy like that? And then verse 23, if I could say circle it, mark it, underline it, highlight it, star it. Verse 23. He says to Abiathar, whose family and priests except him have just been mass murdered. David says, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. By the way, can you not just picture the capital M Messiah, Jesus, saying the same? When life is chasing you down, and you see and behold the brokenness of our world. Where do you flee? To whom do you flee? Thomas and Greer make mention of some broken saviors that we tend to flee to. Here's five of them, self, money, power, sex and sexuality, and relationships. But self is a broken savior. Money, it is a broken savior, friends. Power, it is a broken savior. Sex and sexuality, it is a broken savior. Relationships, they are broken saviors. Let me say it this way. Self, self is a wonderful gift from God. Life is a wonderful gift from God and the capacity and the ability to think and all is a wonderful gift from God, but self is a terrible God. Money is a wonderful gift from the Lord, amen? But it is a terrible God. Power is a wonderful gift from the Lord, but it is a terrible small g God. Sex and sexuality. If I could just have more sex, if I could be this sex, if I could just have that. Listen, sexuality is a wonderful gift from God, but it is a terrible God. And relationships. Relationships are wonderful gifts from God, 
But oh my friends, relationships in and of themselves trying to be our God, they will never, never satisfy. Friends, broken saviors promise the world, but they leave us empty and hollow. I just cannot be struck more by that last statement of David in a tragic text and not see the Lord Jesus Christ being pointed to. There is an unbroken Savior. It is the one of John 14, 6. I Jesus said, and the way and the truth and the life. By the way, it is not I am a way, a truth, a life. The definite article is there and matters. I am the way and the truth, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And as we seek to flee the brokenness of this world, seriously, friend, seriously, friend, where are you fleeing to? Who are you fleeing to? And Jesus says to you, come stay with me. Don't be afraid. With me, you will be in safekeeping. I want there. I want there. Friends, seriously, this last week, what or who has been your savior? you have never come to the place where you've received Jesus Christ as your savior and driven that stake in the ground, I call you to today. David is the prefigure of the coming one. And he came. And he died on the cross and rose again. And he says, stay with me. The question is, is, is that where we flee to? Well, next week we're going to pick up in chapter 23. So, Lord, I leave it there in your hands to, to work and to do as you see and know best. God, I thank you so much that, that you are a God that is not a hothead like Saul. You're enduring patience, you're enduring love for broken people like us. <laughs> it's amazing. I don't know why you don't get tired of us. I don't know why you just don't end this all just because you're frustrated. Lord, we are told that you love this world so much that you stepped into this broken world 
to pay the price for broken people. And then as many as received him, to them he came, gave the right to become children of God. And I, God, I do. I pray if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know that they know that they know that they have a relationship with you, that today they would confirm that. Get with someone. Talk about it. Drive that stake in the ground. And this is the testimony that God has given eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And Lord, we run to you for eternal life, but we run to you for daily life. Forgive us, will you, for our scattered running? And I pray that right now, right here, we would be a people that flee to you in your perfect, safe keeping. God, help us. We need you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.